0: Welcome to this week's sermon from Dale Partridge at Kingsway Bible Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit kingswaybible.org. Okay, so we're going to be talking about the imprecatory Psalms, and I want you guys just to have a basic comprehension. In the Psalms, we find there's really seven distinct genres or categories of language uh, or literary structures— In the Psalms, you have lament, thanksgiving, enthronement, pilgrimage, uh, royal wisdom, and imprecatory. And imprecatory in this context really refers to uh, this divine invoking of cursing. Uh, It it manifests itself through judgments, um, calamity, uh, misfortune, um, destruction. And so we're going to see some of this imprecatory language throughout the Psalms. And it can be controversial if you don't have the right perspective around how to interpret the psalm. So uh, arguably there are 21 imprecatory psalms in the Psalter, but not every psalm is saturated with imprecatory language. So when I say an imprecatory psalm, it doesn't mean that the whole psalm is imprecatory in its uh, content. It means that a section of that psalm is imprecatory, or the, maybe the, uh, the brunt of that psalm is imprecatory. And so the most prominent imprecatory psalms we're going to see is 69, which we're going to read today, and Psalm 109. But there are others that have imprecatory language, which I think is very masculine. It's very, um, It's very robust and warlike language. I think it connects with men. Again, I think it gives us the right posture to be thinking about these judgments and how we can also err in thinking about them incorrectly or misinterpreting them. But we have, you know, Psalm 5, 6, 11, 12, 35, 37, 40, 52, 54, 56, 57, 58, 59, 79, 83, 94, 137, 139, and 143 are all going to have some sort of imprecatory language. You cannot escape the imprecatory element of the Psalter. And again, this is, uh, you know, some Christians want to argue that the imprecatory Psalms only apply to the old covenant people of God. This is, again, people that are viewing the covenant not under one covenant of grace, but generally that people that are thinking that the, there's, the, there's the old covenant God who is manifested by his wrath. And then we have the new covenant God who is manifested by his wrath. Love, Right. And so th- these are people that are dividing and viewing covenants as uh, not different manifestations of the same covenant of grace, but two different dispensations under two very different covenants and relationships with God. And so, so there's, there, there's a covenant theology that needs to be established to understand the Psalms. And that these are actually for us, the people of God, grafted in to the tree of Israel. And so um, when people uh, you know, talk about this kind of divide, it's important to recognize that, that um, the imprecatory Psalms are actually Holy Spirit-inspired content of the Psalter, prophetic in nature in, in many cases, and valuable for the Christian life. And so this is actually something that I believe is going to be edifying for you as a man, uh, for the church. And, and so let me talk about a couple other conflicts that I think that you're going to hear when you talk about imprecatory psalms or imprecatory prayers or imprecatory singing, which we are going to be doing here at this church. A lot of people think that they conflict with Christ's command to love our enemies. You know, what does Paul say? Bless and do not curse, right? So, so you, you go, well... How, how can we say that and then also say that we should be singing cursing songs or cursing prayers? You know, we're, there's, a, there's a conflict here. And so we have to remember that loving our enemies does not imply that we should hope for God to somehow compromise on his justice or on his divine judgments upon those who are unrepentant or wicked. And that's a key point there. Love is multidimensional, right? So we know that, that God's love is multidimensional and there, there's a part of God's love that is, is soft and American and, and want to behold you and comfort you. That's a part of God's love, but there's also a discriminatory part of God's love. You know, like I have a discriminatory love for Veronica. You know, my my, my wife is special. I love all women in a sense, but I actually have a special love for my wife. And there is a discriminatory nature that I have towards other women that's loving to my wife. And and we need to, as Christians, understand that that there's a multi-dimensional aspect of God's love. And one of them is God's justice is loving to the world. And it's God's wrath is actually a good thing. And D.A. Carson actually wrote a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. It's a short book and it's very robust in it's breaking out that love is not simple, it's complex. And part of this, again, is God's justice. It is a very loving thing to uh, essentially trust on the justice and the wrath and judgment of God upon evil. This is a good thing. And it does not mean that we should become more comfortable with evil. Uh, We should, it does not mean that we should not pray for righteous judgment to be exercised and quickly. We should be praying for these things. We do every Sunday now. We want justice to be served. We want God to exercise condemnation upon those who are unrepentant, rejecting, building evil things in this world, rejecting and not submitting to the lordship of Jesus. And so singing and praying in precatory psalms or hymns or prayers that call upon God to punish the wicked or to punish the unrepentant or that he essentially will fulfill his promises about these matters, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to ask God to accomplish what he already promised to accomplish, which is that he will punish evil and that he will punish the unrepentant and that he will actually uphold the righteous and that he will restore the righteous and bless the righteous and curse the wicked for their evil ways. Uh, John Tweedle, in an article on Table Talk magazine, he wrote, quote, the imprecatory Psalms help give shape to the hurt and outrage that the people of God at times experience in a world desecrated by sin. Praying for God to punish the wicked is neither unloving nor vindicative, but it is an expression of faith in him who judges justly. Therefore, we pray for God to either convert or to curse the enemies of Christ and his kingdom. This This is how God... Conquers his enemies through conversion, right? We know this. We were all enemies of God. I don't care if you were converted at four or 40, you were an enemy at God at birth, hating the submission to Christ, loving sin. And yes, there's the exception that you were regenerate in the womb, right? We know that that's possible because of John the Baptist. But the normative reality is that we are hating God's law. And God converts his enemies and con- or conquers his enemies through conversion. That's what the gospel does. Christ won. And we as the church get to tell the world that he won. And we get to carry that news. It's funny. I was just thinking about this a couple days ago. Uh, okay. So you, you know the holiday Juneteenth, it's a new holiday, right? And I was just doing some research on it. I was like, okay, so the, it's essentially the Emancipation Proclamation makes its last You know, awareness to the, to the, to the last slaves. Uh, the proclamation was made before, but it finally made it to these people, right? That concept is really similar to the gospel. The, the war is won, right? The gospel is, is already been established. The conquering of Satan has been done. The battle the battlefield needs to be made aware of what happened. And so again, kind of like David and Goliath, right? Um, David cuts off the head of God's enemy, the enemy of God's people, Goliath. And what does it do? Well, it, it enlivens the armies of Israel to chase the Philistines all the way to their camp. And the gospel, Christ has cut off the the serpent's head by the use of the cross. He's holding it through his resurrection high in the air. And the church now is like Israel, and we are chasing the world, proclaiming the gospel, converting the enemies of Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. That's what we're doing in the Great Commission if we're looking at it through the lens of a war angle or a battlefield angle, or a kingdom angle. And I again, I like what Tweedale says. Therefore, we pray for God either to convert or curse the enemies of Christ and his kingdom. So in truth, the imprecatory prayer or song cannot be avoided, okay? We're, we're going to do this no matter what, and I'll tell you why. Um, each time we pray, Lord, come quickly. Lord, come quickly. Have you ever like gone and seen something terrible and just uttered under your breath, like, come quickly, like mop up mop up this mess, come quickly. Um, I, I have, like you, you hear something terrible in the news. I, we all know that we don't, we want the Lord to save the very last soul. We understand that God's going to come back when the last elect individual comes to Christ. And we know that that's likely a long ways off, but I, I just go, oh, Lord, come quickly. But every time you pray that prayer, what are you essentially saying? Come, bring justice and judgment to the earth, vindicate the righteous, and curse the unrepentant. Every time you say that, Lord, come quickly. You're you're that's an imprecatory prayer. And so we are imploring God to come and execute justice in the earth. The Lord's prayer. What does it do? It instructs us to petition, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is an imprecatory prayer. Your kingdom come, not the kingdom of this world. Curse the kingdom of this world. Thy will be done, not the will of the wicked and the evil. We want heaven on earth. That's what we're expecting, right? We're expecting the restoration of the world, Edenic reality to be restored to the earth where we will dwell and worship God forever and wickedness will be displaced and judged. And we're praying for those things. We want those things to come about. And so God's kingdom cannot be established without the condemnation of evil, the the warning of impending judgment to sinners, the demanding of the nations to submit to King Jesus. This is something that we do as Christians. Christ won the war. We're letting you know. Submit to Christ or every knee will bow eventually, including yours. And so Jesus, we know, leverages imprecatory prophecy. He he does this in Matthew 23 and 24. He tells about the future condemnation of, of uh, Jerusalem on 70 AD in Matthew 24. He talks about certain uh, cities that are going to have condemnation coming down. Uh, we know that Paul invokes imprecatory uh, preaching or writing when he says, any one of you who accepts or receives a gospel, even if it's from an angel, let him be accursed, right? So this is, again, imprecatory language that we see. Uh, in Revelation, the martyrs cry out for the avenging of their blood. Come bring justice for the injustice of our lives, right? This is, again, imprecatory language that we see throughout scripture. So it's essential uh, to understand that the Psalms do not, imprecatory Psalms do not lack love. Uh, Rather, they invoke a different dimension of God's love the justice of God's love? You cannot even have love without justice because love requires truth and truth requires justice. I mean, it's just a waterfall cascading reality of an argument. So we're invoking a different dimension of love by speaking to the just consequences of wickedness for those who reject the ways and the will and the law of Jesus Christ. So I'm almost done here. Proverbs 24, 24 through 25 says, whoever says to the wicked you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come upon them." End quote. Amen? Amen. So this is important because the awareness of sin and judgment leads people to repentance. When we sing an imprecatory psalm or hymn at the courthouse steps, and someone hears about the just judgment of God coming for sinners. This is a good thing. This is the love of God extended to them. And again, while it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God, we also serve a God of mercy, a God who will allow imprecatory prayers and imprecatory psalms and imprecatory hymns to be sung that some might turn that some might be saved that some might see the wickedness of their ways so when we do this um when we sing these songs and pray these prayers we we do so not just to invoke curses like that's not that's not our only desire is that you know the wicked get what they deserve according to the word of god that that's, that's not only it it's it's to convey and to symbolize and to demonstrate that our God is a God of justice and he will accomplish what he says he will accomplish in the world. And his mercy is available to all those through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And he will not allow the wicked to go unpunished. It's both sides. It's both sides. And we live in an American church that's very winsome and it's a one-sided gospel. It's the good news without the bad news. And we will sing of the bad news because it sends us to the good news. And we will sing of the justice of God because the justice of God is good. Now, one very important distinction before we start study, studying Psalm 69. Um, imprec- um, imprecatory prayers and Psalms, they cannot ever occur by our own authority. In fact, when you, when you, Pray an imprecatory prayer. You're praying for God's justice by which you would be subject to, right? You, you, like, I, I don't want to pray a prayer like out of my own personal vendetta or vengeance upon someone. I don't have the authority to define justice that way. These are, again, asking for the fulfillment of God's justice and wrath that is already promised in scripture for these people. And so we're we're never to pray or sing for the cursing, again, for for the fulfillment of our own vengeance. This is something that we want God's justice to occur, and we want those things that are aligned with God's word, already promises, regarding the injustice, the wickedness, the sinfulness, the apostasy that we see in the world. So today we're going to start by reading Psalm 69. We're going to look at four questions. Um to properly interpret Psalm 69, and uh, we're going to start somewhere between a six to eight week study going through some of these imprecatory psalms, and Lord willing, at the end of it, we'll, we'll learn how to pray and imprecatory prayers properly. We'll learn how to sing some of these imprecatory psalms, and we will learn how to think properly around imprecatory um, passages of scripture without falling into the ditch of either side. So um, I want you guys to look at the text here in a second. William Plummer, 1800s uh, preacher, he said, the Psalms were written a long time ago in an age and country very diverse from our own and in a language so peculiar as to have no parallel today. Okay, so the uh, Steve Lawson preached through all 150 Psalms when I was taking his uh, preaching classes uh down in Los Angeles he said that the psalms were such like probably the pinnacle of his preaching because you have to have understanding of you know botany and theology and geography and agriculture and birthing cycles of animals and and the stars and like so much required information from a hebraic Perspective to properly interpret the Psalms. You can be very, there's allusions, there's typographical realities, there's prophecy, there's, um, you know, elements of the Psalms where it may or may not be talking about something that you're thinking it's talking about. It's very difficult to interpret poetry. We're going to see parallelism. Synony- synonymous parallelism. We're going to start to see all types of stuff in the Psalms that are very important for us to learn how to interpret these things carefully. Some of these things you're not going to want to die for because you think that it's saying something. Um, this is The Psalms are very uh, carefully interpreted. And so Psalm 69 is a messianic Psalm. Uh, what I mean by that is that there are things that are certainly pointing to Christ. You're going to see that. And there are things that Jesus says from Psalm 69, applying it to his own life. So we know that. There are also things about David. And so David is a type of Christ. And Christ is the, the truest fulfillment, the antitype of that. And there are things that are true of David. And part, partly... Totally true in Christ, and there are things that are just about David. You're going to hear about David's sinfulness in verse five, that are not true of Christ at all. And so you're going to oscillate between who is David talking. Does he know he's prophesying these things right now? And so it's important to be very careful and slow as we read this. So I'm going to give you just a very very brief outline of the uh, Psalm 69. I want you to open up your Bibles right now and just look at it as I'm giving you this basic breakdown. We're going to read it together and we're going to ask four questions. So number verses one through four is essentially his complaint, uh, David's complaint of the affliction of persecution and the need for deliverance. Uh, and note that David has, is not being persecuted for uh, something sinful that he's done. He's actually being persecuted for righteousness. Verses five through nine, it's his admission of his own sinfulness. I'm a foolish man, he says. 13 through 21 is his petition to the Lord. 22 through 28 is his imprec- um, imprecation <laughs> imprecation for justice. That's the imprecatory section of the psalm is verses 22 through 28. Verses 30 through 36 is his thankfulness and faithfulness of anticipata- anticipation of deliverance. And so let's read uh, Psalm 69. And then the four questions that we're going to answer or going to ask ourselves is based off of what I call the A-I-O, sorry, AOIA uh, standard of interpretation. It's analyzation, observation, interpretation, application. Every time you interpret a passage of scripture, you should apply that principle. Analyzation, observation, interpretation, application. And I know a lot of you guys that go to the gym, you walk into the gym and you just hit the weights. It's stupid. What are you supposed to do before you hit the weights? You should warm up, right? You should stretch. You should uh, wake up your muscles a little bit before you throw down 225 10 times on the chest, right? Whatever it may be, the reality is, is, the same thing happens with interpretation. You don't just walk in and start interpreting scripture. Like, no, you analyze the passage. Who wrote it? Why was it written? What questions do I have about this? What's the relationship between the author and the audience of this text? You know, what's the history, the, the cultural, geographical, historical reality? Observation. Let's look at some observation. What what obs- observations can we make? This is a unique piece of text. He says righteousness 14 times here. Or look at the imprecatory reality of this section of scripture. What Making observations. And then at that point you can start to make interpretations. And at that point you can start making applications. And so we'll ask the questions. What questions do we have? Analyzation. What observations did you make? Observation. What is the author's meaning of this text? Interpretation. How can I apply that meaning of this text to my life? Application. And so now let's spend some time, read through Psalm 69. Thank you for listening to this sermon. For more information about Pastor Dale Partridge or Kingsway Bible Church, visit kingswaybible.org.